Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. It wasn't that long ago that globalization was almost universally perceived as a good thing when policymakers celebrated free trade agreements and when countries competed to lower barriers to the free flow of goods, technology, and money. But something in the global zeitgeist seems to have shifted. Instead of talking about open markets, we hear about decoupling, national champions, reshoring, strategic sectors. We seem to have moved from a world where markets ruled to one where politics rules. And it's the politics, it seems, of nationalism and confrontation of East versus West instead of East and West. Weijian Shan is an economist, businessman, investor, and author based in Hong Kong. He is chairman and CEO of PAG, one of Asia's leading investment firms, and author of two books, Money Games, the inside story of how American dealmakers saved Korea's most iconic bank, and Out of the Gobi, my story of China and America. All of that gives him a unique perspective, not just on global markets, but on how the world really works. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with where we are rather than how we got here. Do you think American, Chinese, European, and other governments are really prepared to move from a globalized world economy to one which an American strategist recently called a bifurcated world economy? I think that uh, the extent of globalization as we have today will not so much change, but I think that there will be effort, especially on the part of Western countries, to decouple uh, to the extent possible, which I think will not make too much of a difference, although here and there it may make some difference. For example, we have gone through few years, more than two years, of trade war between the United States and China. And uh, that, of course, does nobody any good. And in fact, it has not changed anything. China's surplus with the United States remains. America still runs a large trade deficit, actually more than two years ago. So the net effect is that American consumers are paying more for goods imported from China uh, because of the higher tariffs. But when it comes to the stated purpose of having a trade war, that is to reduce the trade deficit for the United States, it has not produced that result at all. But arguably, it is more than just Trump's trade war. Uh, We have the Europeans, as we speak, talking about new restrictions on investment flows, and they seem to be aimed at China. We have China talking about Made in China 2025. We have the current administration in Washington, as well as the Congress, talking about sanctions, talking about uh, restricting technology flows. There's an awful lot of noise in the political air all over the world, I would argue, that is contrary to earlier expectations that we could build a globally open trade and payment system. It is noise. It hasn't changed a lot. 
but these kinds of things take time. Are you worried that we're headed in the wrong direction or do you think it's all just noise and it may go away? It's not going to go away. In fact, I think it's going to intensify. But as I said, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. For example, China now is the largest trading nation in the world. And uh, last year, China has become the largest recipient of foreign direct investment in the world, surpassing the United States. So in spite of all the rhetoric, what we have seen is increased trade flow. And China is registering record high trade surpluses, although also record high imports. So in spite of all this noise that you mentioned, on the ground, when it comes to trade flow and investment flow, it has not made much of a difference at all. And the truth of the matter is that the United States considers the trade deficit with China as evidence of unfair trade practices. But if you look at China's 10 largest trading partners, eight of them, excluding Hong Kong, which is part of China, run a large trade surplus with China. And the top 10 exporters to China, including Germany, Japan, Australia, Korea, and so forth, their combined GDP is about 80% that of the United States. But they export to China eight times as much as the United States. So it's not that there's certain trade practices on the part of the Chinese to create this trade surplus with the United States or the trade deficit suffered by the United States. It has to do with the consumption pattern, the savings rate of the United States, which has trade deficit with 150 of the 190 countries in the world. Certainly, no one should argue, even though American authorities did, that bilateral trade balances mean anything in economic terms. Uh, we all learned that way back in Economics 100 in the early days of our college education. That's correct. But it is the case that there is fairly widespread agreement that there are barriers to markets working in China and barriers to markets working in the United States as well. And it is certainly the case that Made in China 2025 is an explicit program designed, as other countries do as well, designed to build domestic, not global, domestic manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. It's a question, I suppose. Are you arguing that China has no barriers to free flow of goods, investment, and technology? No, I'm not arguing about that at all. What I have seen is, of course, the Chinese market has become more and more open, which is the reason why it has become the largest trading nation in the world. And uh, we all wish, in fact, about a year or two ago, I published an article in Foreign Affairs, we all wished that all countries have zero tariffs so that, you know, I'm a big believer of free trade so that barriers will be brought down so that countries will be able to trade with each other. The reality was, I, I'm talking about two years ago, that America has a lower tariff rate compared with China. So there should be an effort to pressure China to bring down the trade barriers in the form of tangible 
tariffs, and perhaps some intangible trade barriers. Trade war is not the way to do it.、Uh, the result of the trade war is that tariffs on both sides have been increased. So I hope that、uh, you know all nations make an effort to actually bring down the trade barriers, so that there's more free trade as opposed to you know this. Uh, trade war that we have experienced in the past two to three years, which again I think only makes all the trading nations suffer because we're talking about creating economic inefficiency without achieving the stated purpose of reducing trade deficit. Well, I go back to my opening comment that we do seem to be moving away from a world where economics was the driver behind. Policy to one where politics may be the driver behind policy, and that's going to be a second best world in terms of growth and investment. I'd like to go back to that foreign affairs article, which in in which you argued, you said that each country, China and the U.S., must determine what its real objectives are and make important concessions. In that article, you outlined what you think those objectives might be, and it's now two years later. We are where we are. What should China's objectives be. What should the United States' objectives be when it comes to these very important trade and investment and technology issues that are increasingly dividing the two countries? I think if the issue is isolated to trade alone, then it is easier to resolve. I think the solution is that both countries will make an effort to bring down trade barriers. But if the objective of the United States is to contain China, contain China's growth, because it considers China's economic rise as a threat to itself, to its supremacy in the world, and then I think using trade war, technology war, or financial war will simply not achieve its purpose. On the part of China, I think that.、Uh, In the past two years, actually has opened up more, in terms of allowing foreign investments into certain sectors, in particular the financial sector. Used to be the case that J.P. Morgan could only own 49% of their operation in China. Now it's 100% as Goldman Sachs, as Morgan Stanley. So China is opening up both in terms of investments and in terms of trade. And China signed. A so-called regional comprehensive economic partnership with 14 Asian countries last year. It also signed an investment agreement with Europe last year, subject to ratification of different countries in the EU, and that's going to take probably about two years. But it seems that the economic relationship with the United States is very much strained. Again, you know. We are talking about trade war and technology war, and all that. I think China should continue to open up, regardless what America does. And I think America will have to think very carefully whether or not all these wars、uh, would actually hurt China meaningfully, or it will have to bear the cost. It will have to be hurt by these measures itself. I'd like to go back just for a second to something you've just said, which you raised the question whether what the U.S. really wants is to contain China's rise, which you also addressed in your foreign affairs article. 
objectively, it certainly seems that China is rising uh, very spectacularly so over decades and, and continuing. So it seems to me that either the U.S. is failing badly at containing China or it's not aiming to contain China. What, what am I missing? Let's just look at the numbers. In the past 30 years, the Chinese economy has grown 36 times. That is, its GDP has grown 36 times. In 2000, the Chinese GDP is about 11% that of the United States. That is, America's GDP was nine times that of China's in 2000. Today, China's GDP is about three quarters that of the United States, right? From 11% to three quarters. So the Chinese economy is growing very rapidly uh, in, in the past 20, 30 years. Will China be able to sustain its economic growth? I think there's no reason to believe otherwise. The reason for that is that China has, you know, contrary to perhaps the conventional perception, uh, China doesn't really have a unique model of economic development, as many people believe. Many people think that the Chinese government controls all the economic activities, which explains why China has grown so fast. Nothing can be further from the truth. If you look at China 40 years ago, when the government controlled all the economic activities, when I was a hard laborer in the Gobi Desert, where I worked, toiled in the fields for 10 years without any formal secondary education, and that was a time when all the economic activities were controlled by the government. Yet, the country produced nothing but dire poverty. And we, at that time, couldn't even feed ourselves. Not enough clothing, very often no shelter, as I described in my book, Out of the Gobi. China developed not because so much government control of economic activities, but because it has embraced capitalism, market economy, to such extent that today, private sector accounts for about 70% of China's GDP. And this is a fact that many Americans simply don't know. You know, they think that China is very socialist and they think China is uh, a country where the economy is very much controlled by the state. No, if the state planning system works, the Soviet Union wouldn't have collapsed and China wouldn't have changed you know, 40 years ago. So it is really capitalism which has driven the economic growth of China. Such being the case, how do you contain it? Right? I think it's very difficult for anybody to do so. That's precisely my question to you. Why do you think, given all of that evidence that the U.S. is trying to contain China, uh, rhetoric aside, the facts, as you've just described them, seem to speak for themselves. It's either not trying to contain or it's failing to contain. There's only two possibilities. I think that uh, politicians have talked about, of course, the threat to America's national 
security. I think that is probably a good excuse to pursue a policy that uh, is designed to check China's growth. The truth of the matter is, of course, China is no threat to America's national security. <laughs> you wouldn't imagine that China be able to reach the United States in any way to threat to threaten its national security. I think China is a threat in the sense that it will soon, perhaps in the next 10 years, become the largest economy in the world in U.S. dollar nominal terms. Today is 75% that of the United States. The American GDP is about 20.5 trillion U.S. dollars, whereas China's is about 15 trillion dollars. And uh, in purchasing power parity terms, China is already larger than the United States, about 24 trillion U.S. dollars. I think to America and to many Americans, it's not a very comfortable thought to think that America will not occupy the number one position uh, as the predominant economy in the world. So in this sense, that China is really a threat. It threatens to replace America as the largest economy in the world. But I think that's inevitable because the Chinese population is four times that of the United States. And today, China's per capita GDP is only $10,000, whereas America's is $60,000. So China remains pretty poor. But in aggregate, you got to be larger, right? It has to be larger. So I think in the next 10 years, both in dollar terms, in purchasing power parity terms, China will become larger. And some are concerned about that particular prospect, and therefore an effort is made to cripple its growth. But I think that would be rather futile because it doesn't take very long or much for China to become the largest economy in the world. After a year of pandemic, many people blame their leaders for what has been an incredibly difficult time during which governments and many other organizations performed poorly. But maybe there are great leaders who, despite the problem, are working to make our world a bit better. If you know someone like that in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasin Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G, prize.org. Let me widen the aperture just a little bit and see if we can't tease a couple issues out. Until recently, I had given no particular thought to what we mean when we talk about a rules-based order, which we all use as shorthand for how international trade, investment, payments, everything works. Very recently, China's foreign minister said, quote, it is only a rule set by Western countries. It only covers 12% of the people in the world and cannot become a general rule for all countries. In other words, he's asking what I think is a terrifically good question as to whether what we've called the rules-based order that has dominated the global system for the last 50 years is really relevant to the evolution of the global economy going forward. What do you think? I think the statement that you just quoted is taken out of the context 
of where and when that statement was made, it was in connection with the climate summit among the nations about the rules governing the countries going forward. With regard to economic, with regard to economic、uh, world order, you know, let's go back to Bretton Woods system, which created the World Bank, and let's go back to United Nations, which is the predominant international institution. And if you look at WTO, and China has benefited a great deal by becoming part of the. Rule-based world order since 40 years ago, you know, China joined WTO in 2000, and、uh, China, I think, would be very happy to operate within the rules of the international order established after the Second World War. If you look at the American behavior. Especially during the Trump administration, and you would find that America very often would resort to bilateralism as opposed to multilateralism. America actually pulled out the Paris Climate Accord under the Trump administration. Of course, Biden rejoined it. America negotiated under the Obama administration the Iran nuclear deal. And then Trump pulled out of it, and America practically crippled WTO until very recently. And America actually imposed the sanctions on the judges of International Criminal Court last year,、uh, until, of course, the Biden administration lifted those sanctions. I think if all nations play by the rules of the International order that America led in the establishment of after the war, then the world is much more stable place. I think what China objects to, and this is my understanding. Of course, I don't know all their perspectives. I think what China is concerned about is America itself sets up the rules, and then everybody will have to follow. Uh, I would point out, just for the record, that the minister was talking after the summit and not about the summit, because the context of his speech, which I've listened to, was not climate, but it was much more about how the world works, broadly defined. Yes, yes, but it was after the summit, and therefore in connection with the discussion、uh, during the summit. But in any case, we agree to disagree because I listened to it and I was there, and that was not what it was about. But let me go on to the financial side of this. You're a banker. You're an investor.、Uh, you have worked in the dollar-based system、uh, that has existed at least since 1950. My own view is that the Americans have been abusing the privilege that system bestows on, on the creators of the dollars. Uh, both through their economic policies as well as through their willingness to weaponize the dollar, excessive use of sanctions.、Um, I'd be delighted to get your perspective on that, in particular. But but far more importantly, if you forecast ten, fifteen years from now, a rising China, China larger than the United States in economic terms, sooner or later, inevitable, as you said. What do you think the global financial system looks like? Is the dollar still the dominant global currency in ten years? 
Do we live in a world of cryptocurrencies? Uh, do we live in a world where perhaps the Chinese currency becomes a major globally held currency? How do you think this, this international financial system might well evolve? I don't expect any significant change at all. The truth of the matter is that the U.S. dollar is dominant. It represents about 59% of all the foreign exchange reserves in the world. The Chinese currency, the yuan, the RMB, represents probably 2 to 3% of the global foreign exchange reserves. So there's no comparison. And many of the commodities are denominated or priced in U.S. dollars, and that's not going to change significantly. The Chinese currency will become more of international reserve currency if China makes the currency fully convertible. See, the Chinese currency, RMB, is convertible fully under the current account, that is, trade account and service account. It is convertible when it comes to foreign direct investment. That is, if you buy a company in China or directly invest in the company in China, and vice versa, the currency is convertible. But if you want to invest in the stock market in China, then there are many restrictions. So by and large, there's still capital control in China. And before you lift completely capital control, before you make the currency completely convertible, then it's impossible for the Chinese currency to become accepted as the international reserve currency on any large scale. And I don't think that's going to change in the next 10 years, digital currency or not. And do you expect digital currencies to play any significant role in global finance over this elongated time frame? I would think so. China will be the first country to roll out a digital currency on nationwide scale, probably within this year. If not this year, certainly in two years' time. So once it becomes the currency in one country, of course, some international settlements will be made in terms of digital currency. America will not be very far behind in this regard. At this moment, the innovation of digital currency in the United States is a little behind. But I don't think it will take very much. I don't think private digital currency or cryptocurrency will become a major force, simply because central banks, for reasons of anti-money laundering, for reasons of controlling the financial system, for reasons of controlling money supply, will allow a private currency to flourish or to replace the official uh, fiat uh, as a you know, medium of exchange. So I think you will see digital currencies issued by central banks uh, within the next few years. And in 10 years' time, I don't think you will see money uh, in paper anymore. See, even today, if I go to China today, I was in China about 18 months ago. You know, with the pandemic and all that, I have not been able to travel there. Last time I was there, about 18 months ago, at night, I walked into a 7-Eleven, and I wanted to buy you know, some drinks. And they wouldn't take paper money. They wouldn't take my Visa card either. So I said, what do you take? And they take WeChat Pay, which is electronic you know, with iPhone, or uh, Alipay, 
and I didn't have either of them, and therefore I was not able to buy anything uh, in 7-Eleven, and this was in Beijing. So now China is where paper money is being phased out, um, almost on a nationwide scale. So I think digital currency will follow very quickly. You know, the same is true in Sweden for some time. And I suspect one of the consequences of the pandemic is that tendency is going to accelerate all over the place. Uh, as we've backed off from physical interactions, uh, we're trying to move towards this other place. Let me end with uh, what might be an unfair question, because you've, you are not, you don't speak for the government. And I, and I don't mean to even imply that you would speak for the government. You mean the U.S. government? The U.S. government, the China government, <laughs> any government. Uh, no. Thankfully, are out of government. Uh, right. But the question I want to ask, from your perspective, and I've asked this of others, what does China want? That's a very broad question. It's like saying, what does the United States want? You know, I think a country can want a lot of things. But I would say that from China's perspective, the most important thing is to improve the living standard because the country has been poor for a long time. And last year, China announced that it has eradicated poverty by the World Bank standard. And China, I think, is the only country in the world to have eradicated poverty, which is defined by the World Bank as 2.9 dollars per day, which is kind of extreme poverty level. And it took them about 20, 30 years to achieve this goal. They had a goal to do it, and they wanted to eradicate poverty by the end of 2020, and they did it. And they did it in a way I think is only possible in China. In other countries, would not have been possible. And China has spent a huge amount building its infrastructure. I'm so happy to see that Biden is making such effort to build infrastructure in the United States, where the infrastructure is very much behind if you compare the system in infrastructure in the United States with that of China. Let me just give you an example. Today, China has better roads, highways, better bridges, better ports, better airports, and much better railway system. You know, China has the longest high-speed rail system in the world representing about two-thirds of all the high-speed rail system in the world, about 25,000 miles. The United States doesn't even have a single mile. What is the definition of high-speed rail? You know, you would think that Asler under Amtrak is high-speed. The average speed from New York to Washington is only 65 miles. Chinese high-speed rail system operates at 200 miles per hour. So the distance from, say, Boston to Chicago, by China's high-speed rail system, it takes 3 hours and 58 minutes. By Amtrak, 21 hours and 58 minutes. And Amtrak costs 50% more. And why China has been able to build such advanced infrastructure? Because in the past 10 years, China has invested 10 times as much on infrastructure as the United States in terms of percentage of GDP. In absolute terms, since American GDP is larger than China, in absolute terms, China's spend 
on infrastructure is seven times that of the United States. You know, that makes a huge difference. Why do they spend so much on infrastructure? Because they think that's a way to eradicate poverty, to improve the living standard. I think that's their predominant goal. And there's no question about it. So I think for the United States, and the Biden administration has been talking about competing with China, which I think is very good, uh, to focus on infrastructure build up is the way to do it. Thank you very much for this conversation and thank you for that advice. It sounds like President Biden is taking your advice. We'll see whether the Congress agrees with him or not uh, in, in the coming weeks and months. I think he's doing a very good job, but whether or not he can get his way, we'll have to see. Thank you very much, Adam. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for listening. Now it's your turn. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergprize.org. Thanks again, and most importantly, don't forget to nominate a leader whose work deserves to be recognised and imitated. This podcast brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.